Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are a guest this morning, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. A motorist in Italy in December of 2001 found out that serving does sometimes take a little bit extra energy and time than what you might first think. You see, he was driving along and he saw that a truck had had an accident and he stopped getting out of his vehicle, walking across the road to help the driver. He wasn't paying much attention to the cargo that had spilt in the road. It was a very strong construction adhesive. And what he found that as he began stepping through it, he literally was glued to the road. Fortunately, he had a cell phone and he called for help. They were able to help the driver of the vehicle, of the truck, and hours later they were able to find a chemical agent that would dissolve the glue so that he could be free. Spending several hours that December evening glued to the road. Now, as we think about servanthood, that comes to mind. That simple fact, that genuine servanthood will always cost us our time. It'll always cost us our energy and our effort. Genuine servanthood in the scriptures is esteemed as highly as any characteristic that we read in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, of all the ways that Jesus is described to us, one of the keen ways in which he is described is that he is described as coming to this earth to be a servant. What is interesting to me as we think this morning really of two or three things at one time, as we think about holiness and then also to some degree a little bit about marriage, but especially about servanthood, it's interesting to me to look back over the history of some of the denominations and how some denominations have linked the idea of celibacy when one makes a vow of celibacy in order to be a servant of God, as if that is a synonym along with a faithful servant, as if to contrast that, to say that that is a much greater servant, that is a more dedicated servant than someone who's married that is a faithful child of God. Now, you see, the idea of the celibate vow is that one wholly devotes their self to service to God. I want to ask you this morning as we simply think about this. If one devotes themselves to serving a spouse and in the future children, in other words, to serving a family and serve God, are they doing any less service? I think most of us would agree that for certain the answer would not be no to that because they're going to spend a lot of time serving that family as well as serving God in other ways. Well, then we have to ask this question. When we serve our family the way God designed for us to serve our family, is that a less holy act than if a single person serves in any other way in the way God would design? Friends, this morning I'm simply bringing something up for your consideration that I think we simply need to be aware of the dangers of trying to exalt one idea of servanthood above another, but also to bring aware of the fact that I think we've made a terrible mistake whenever we think that if someone has taken the celibate vow of servanthood, that they immediately become a greater servant. Because you see, when everything is said and done, if we were to take everything out of our mind that we know about servanthood at this moment and think, okay, what's our first and greatest priority? Our first and greatest commitment is to serve God. As we serve God... 
How do we serve others? Well, the Lord would teach us to serve our family. The Lord would teach us if we're married that we are to be devoted and that we are to be a servant of that spouse. If we have children, we are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if we provide not for this family, we're worse than an infidel. In other words, when you and I go into our families and we faithfully work to provide a living, we're serving God. When we go into our families and we faithfully serve our spouse as God has laid out, we are serving God. When we go into our families and we serve our children and we offer to them everything that God would want us as Christian parents to offer them, we are serving God. And so as we think about serving in families, I can't help but think of the tremendous couple of Aquila and Priscilla. As we think about them this morning, I'd like to lay out two passages about servanthood as a foundation of this study. If you would, turn your Bibles to Philippians, the second chapter. In Philippians, the second chapter, we have one of the greatest passages about servanthood. And the reason I feel comfortable saying that is anytime a characteristic is linked to Jesus Christ, it becomes a very significant study for us. And so in Philippians, the second chapter, servanthood is exalted as we are described here. And beginning in verse 3, as we read here, Philippians 2 and 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Now think of yourself if you're you're married, uh, if you have children, if you're a grandparent. I want you to think of yourself right now as a servant in your family. And can you say that you set out every day to do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit? But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, really, if we want to talk about what might be the greatest challenge in being a servant, it might be that the greatest challenge in being a servant is being one that's married. Because every day that individual is going home to these requirements. If you go home to a family each day, I want you to ask yourself these questions. Do I go home and everything I do, is it not from selfish ambition? What you do, is it purely to serve others? Now notice the second thing that he says there, in lowliness of mind, esteeming the other. Do we believe truly that everyone in our house is greater than us, that we esteem them, we hold them in a higher regard than we hold ourselves. And third, the mind of a servant is one that has interest in other people's interests. You know, husbands, that's why we come in after a long day of work and we sit down with our wife and instead of flipping through the channels, we turn everything off and we say, tell me about your day today. You know, you did that last week, right? When I talk in marriage seminars, the one thing that is brought up over and over when you talk about communication is that topic. I'm amazed how that always comes up. Why, when I come in after a long day's work, does my wife want to talk? Well, that's the way God made her. Now, here's the question. Are you going to have interest in her interest? In other words, are you going to serve? That is a way that God has literally designed for husbands to serve their wives. But now notice here as he lays all of this in the mind of Christ, 
That's the mind we cultivate in order to do this. But then he puts it in giving us the example of Jesus. Look in verse 5, 6, and 7. Let, us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ showed us that mind that didn't have selfish ambition, that esteemed others, and that was truly concerned about others' interests. He showed us that. So we need to have that mind. And here's what Jesus did in verse 6. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He was God. But when he came to this earth, he did not come with a great reputation. He did not come to say, look, I'm born of royalty. I'm a king. I'm the creator. Even though that was eventually all revealed, he came as a child to a very humble family. And you know, as we think about families, this becomes a very important point. Can I come into my home every day with no reputation? Can I honestly come into my home and say, I'm just here to serve today. Jesus came to this earth in the form of a servant. Notice it didn't say he acted like a servant. He didn't say he took on the characteristic of a servant. He came in the form of a servant. No reputation. Well, who are you, Jesus? I'm here to serve. I am a servant. How many times do... Husbands or wives come into the home and their idea is, I'm the one that pays the bills here. I just want to make sure everybody knows that. That's my reputation. That's who I am. I'm coming in and I'm the boss. I want everybody to bow to me. I want everybody to jump when I bark. What reputation do you come into your house with? Can you honestly say as parent, child, husband, wife, can you honestly say, I come into my house every day with no reputation other than I'm just a servant. Yes, we have our roles. Yes, God's designed for the man to be the head of the home. And yes, he has given roles that are very specific to parents and roles that are very specific to children and to each husband and wife. We're not diminishing those when we teach servanthood. We're teaching that the servanthood does not ever fall prey to some kind of misconception that because of who I am or what I have done, it relinquishes my responsibility to serve. That's just not true. How do we become this servant? If you will look with me to Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians, the second chapter, and then as we lay this groundwork, we'll study uh, for the last half of the lesson a very beautiful couple that we can, even though we only see them a few times in the Scriptures, we see so much about them. In Ephesians, the second chapter... You remember at the beginning of the year, JP and, and the deacons, uh, a big part of the kickoff of encouraging everyone to get involved was to study Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And, and that's where we looked at the fact that we were saved from something, for something. God has saved us from our sins, and God has a purpose for us. And he talks about us being saved in verse 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. But notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Now remember, this word workmanship is used again in Romans 1, and there he's talking about the physical idea, that we are physically God's workmanship. But here he's not talking about the physical. Here when he talks about us being workmanship, he's talking about Christians, those who have allowed 
Jesus to recreate them. In other words, Romans 12 and 2 would call it a, to be transformed in the image of Jesus. And so notice here, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we go back to that in Philippians 2 and we say, you know what? I want to be a servant. I know it costs. I know it's a sacrifice. I know it's lifting others up and it's humbling ourselves, and that it's literally serving by taking interest in other people's interests. I want to be a servant. How do I do it? Friends, I need to realize I don't do this one on my own. I only become that kind of holy servant. You know what the word holy means? Holy coming out of the Old Testament is when God took something and He set it apart only for His use. You and I, maybe we've been in a place where the house was so nice or maybe because it's simply the way that everybody else in the house did. We felt like when we walked in the house, we need to take our shoes off. When's the last time you walked across a piece of ground and you said, whoa, I better take my shoes off to walk here. When's the last time you've been a shepherd out looking after sheep and decided, hey, I better take my shoes off for this piece of ground. Moses, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. What made that ground holy? God says, this is now my ground. I'm using this ground at this time. When God took something and set it aside for His use, then common use of it was no longer acceptable. That's why when we read in the book of Leviticus about the holiness of God, and over and over it says, do not profane His name. The idea is God's name is holy. Don't use it in common ways. Don't degrade it and make it something that is earthly. He is divine. When he gave incense that was to be used in the temple, he says you can't take this same recipe and go home and use it at home because daily use of it would profane it. This is set aside for exactly how I've taught that it is to be used. Now how does this carry over into the New Testament? We are to be his holy children. In other words, we are to be set apart from the world, but it's not just a separation. It's the fact that now we have been bought and we are to be used by God for a purpose. You see what we read here in Ephesians 2 and 10. I know it doesn't contain the word holy, but that's what's being described. He's literally saying, I want to take people and I want to work my act in them. I want to possess them. I want them to be my workmanship. And I'm going to use their life in a holy, also translated in the New Testament, sanctified way. It's also, by the way, the word holy in the New Testament, uh, coming out of the original language, it's the very same word that each time you see it translated saint, you're reading the same word that was translated holy. It's just this time it's talking about an individual. An individual that's holy is who? A saint. Well, what are they? They are sanctified. The same exact word. What is that? That is holy. The same teaching there. Now, let's run through three points about Aquila and Priscilla. And let's see a couple that seem to have this holiness and servanthood figured out. They seem to do it so well. Let's go back to the text that's been so capable to read. In Acts, the 18th chapter, did you notice there the story as Aquila and Priscilla, they come into Ephesus. 
and they've come along, and this was before our text this morning. This will be back up in the 18th verse. They've come into Ephesus along with Paul. But yet Paul goes on his way to Jerusalem and leaves them behind. Well, they go into the synagogue. Now, let me ask you, why would faithful Christians go into a Jewish synagogue? You see, they were doing what they had seen Paul do very effectively. They had seen Paul go into the synagogues to teach people the truth. And so here we see a couple that we see their holy conduct in this. Their actions displayed the fact that they loved souls. They were actively involved in evangelism. When they go in to hear in the synagogue the teaching of a man who was mighty in the scriptures and eloquent in speech, the only man that we see in the scriptures given both of those characteristics, this man began to teach what wasn't true about the baptism of John. And so they loved the truth. They pulled him aside and they taught him the truth. But notice the third thing here. They also loved others. They loved the Lord. They loved this man. How do we know that? We know the way they conducted themselves. You see, it wasn't something of arrogance. They didn't stand up in, in front of all the synagogue and challenge him and say, Apollos, you're wrong, and we can prove to you you're wrong. No, the Scripture says that they called him aside. They took him aside. See that in verse 26? They took him aside, and they taught him the way more accurately. Friends, it's wonderful when an individual loves the truth, loves souls, and tries to encourage others. But I think it can even be multiplied, the effect of it, the success of it, when a couple does that. You know, when a couple works together to encourage someone, when a couple says, hey, you know, we can invite them over for lunch. We could see if they have an interest in learning about God or invites a visitor out. There's so many ways that as couples we can work to reach out because we love souls, we love others, we love the Lord. But notice this second thing. As we go back to the beginning of Acts, the 18th chapter, in the beginning of Acts, the 18th chapter, we see that they were holy continually. And the reason I say this is because each time we see them in the Scriptures, they were very much dedicated to God. In Acts, the 18th chapter, I'd like to read just a few verses here. We'll begin in verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because... Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Do you notice here that this couple was hospitable? Do you see the phrase, verse 3 there? He stayed with them. You know, hospitality is something that is, it's one of the characteristics of 
uh, I'm sorry, it's one of the qualifications of elders and it's one of the characteristics of Christians, both. All Christians are commanded to be hospitable and elders aren't qualified unless they and their family, unless they are hospitable. What do, what do we know about hospitality? We know this, that oftentimes we like to think that hospitality is just inviting folks into our home. That's a comfortable way to think about it, but that's not the way it would be taught out of the scriptures. Hospitality literally means to take in strangers. You know, when you read Luke, the 14th chapter, he nails, Jesus nails, even though the word hospitable is not there, he nails the teaching of hospitality that he wants us to understand. You remember the teaching there where he taught to throw a, a banquet or throw a feast and invite people into your home? And then he challenges us in Luke, the 14th chapter. Don't invite, don't invite our family. Don't invite our brothers. He says, don't invite the rich that can in turn turn around and invite you back. He says, you invite the lame, the blind, the maimed, because in so doing, they will not be able to repay you. And then the next verse he teaches that that payment will be given back to us on that great resurrection of the just. Friends, I think it's very important for us as we think about the second greatest commandment, to invite our friends into our house. When we study the topic of brotherly love, I think it's important to invite our brothers and sisters into our house. But I need to realize that hospitality is literally reaching out to those who need us because they cannot provide at the present time what they need for themselves. How well do we do at that? Now, the only way show hospitality would not be contained to four walls. We can be hospitable in the sense that we can take people into our life. We can take them into our care. The question is, am I going to be willing to do that? Here's a young couple that they are a couple. I don't know their age. Here's a couple that had been forced out of Italy. Claudius had forced them out because they were Jews. We don't know exactly when they were converted. We don't know if they were converted whenever Paul moved in with them or if they were already Christians and Paul moved in with them. We know he moved in with them because they both shared the same occupation. They were tent makers. As we think about this, I want to give you an, an opinion, and you can see if you agree with it or not, but you'll see here on the second sub-point here about them being holy continually, say that they were comforters. I don't know for certain they comforted Paul, but my guess is they comforted Paul. In 1 Corinthians, it'll be on page 1013 in your pew Bibles. In, in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, I'd like to read to you how Paul entered into Corinth. Notice how Paul entered into Corinth. Now keep in mind, when he entered into Corinth, he had to find a place to stay, so he lived with Aquila and Priscilla. You know, from a few weeks back, we talked about on a, a Sunday morning, especially on Sunday night, the stripes that Paul wore on his body, the, the marks that he had. And we see that Paul and we see a man that in our mind is so strong and so brave and so courageous. But I need to be aware of the fact that he was human. There were times when he went alone and afraid. 
And Paul had left Silas and Timothy back in Berea to continue a work. And he goes into this huge city of Corinth, which would have had hundreds of thousands of people. And it was a port town. So you can imagine people that would have been considered foreigners coming and going. Just like if you imagine our port towns today in America, where people are internationally are coming and going. There is just a different worldly kind of atmosphere in those kind of towns compared to some maybe Midwest small town in America. You can imagine Paul going into Corinth, that kind of setting. And now, after he spent time there, he writes back to them and he confesses what he felt when he went in there. We're in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. And he says in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now he's still talking about when he came to them. Look in verse 3. I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. You know, we oftentimes just don't think of Paul looking at a mission point and saying, I need to go in there and say, I feel too weak to go in there. I feel afraid to go in there. Or the hands, the knees, the body, literally, trembling I would assume that this couple that came to mean so much to Paul and to the church brought this fearful man great comfort when they said to him why don't you stay in our house look you're a tent maker we're tent makers look we we have extra room we'll make room for you can you imagine the comfort that that must have been Can you imagine how it must have encouraged him to have someone at least to work along with him, maybe originally in just making tents, but eventually in doing the Lord's work together as they too became very faithful Christians. And they continued in this. Let me show you what we see over a 15 to 20 year period of time in the scriptures. We see them moving from Corinth with Paul as they went to Ephesus. When Paul went on to Ephesus, we see them staying there and converting Apollos and probably helping the church at Ephesus tremendously. Within seven years later, we see Paul writing to Rome. And when he writes to Rome, the first people he says to give a greeting is to Aquila and Priscilla. But then about 10 years later, when he writes his last writings, if you were to take the last few lines that Paul writes that's recorded by holy inspiration... The last few lines that he ever writes is when he writes back to Ephesus, he's talking to Timothy, and he says, Greet Aquila and Priscilla. You see, they're still faithful. They're still serving. They're still sacrificing. Let's close with this out of Romans, the 16th chapter. If you would, look with me in Romans, the 16th chapter, verse 3, 4, and 5. Notice the sacrifice these individuals were willing to give. Romans 16, verse 3, 4, and 5. He's writing, they top the list. There has to be something significant about that order. Uh, They top the list here. They're back in Rome. And he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. He had worked with them in Corinth. He had worked with them for a short time in Ephesus. And now he longs to go to Rome and he knows that they're there. He loves to work later in Ephesus and he knows that they're there. Paul is very much intertwined with this couple. But notice what he says. It goes deeper than just sharing in a work. Speaking of them in four, he says, who risked 
their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. A while ago when we was talking about hospitality, they opened up their house, whether it was in Rome or in Ephesus. They opened up their house for church to meet there. They opened up their house for Paul to live in in Corinth. But they sacrificed not just comfort. They were literally willing to sacrifice their neck so Paul could live. That significant sacrifice was so well known that when Paul left there and went out and spread the gospel to the Gentiles, that Paul writes back and says, not only am I thankful, but all these Gentiles have heard about it. They know the sacrifice that you made so that I could live, so that I could come out here and I could teach them the gospel. And they write back and say, they're thankful for you also. Holy servants. We don't have to be married. We don't have to be single. We just need to be holy servants. And whatever place God has put us, let's make sure that we realize we have been put there to be set apart from the world for a special work. We are the workmanship of God designed in our conduct to live separate from the world, to live like Christ, in our service to give our all and to do it continually. The Lord has never praised sprints, those sporadic kinds of service. What the Lord praises is those that get in and they serve Him for the duration. Is that where you are this morning? If not, wouldn't this morning be a great time to start that first step of that journey of faithful servanthood toward Jesus Christ? If you've never been baptized into Christ for mission or sins, would you do that this morning? Or if you have, but yet you strayed away, would you come back and confess that sin and pray forgiveness? If we can help you any way this morning in becoming a servant of God, please come as we stand and as we sing.